Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre, based in St. Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd, and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Welcome back to all of you who are regular GodPod listeners, and uh, welcome to those of you who are new GodPod listeners, if it's the first time you've ever listened to a GodPod recording. So uh, my name is Graham Tomlin, and um, it's a very familiar and very pleasant sight here today in the GodPod room, because we have the original three. We do. That's true. Uh, thankfully, they can't see that sight. <laughs> they certainly can't. But we can. I can see it. It's a very pleasant sight, I must nice. say. It's you are nice very to kind. Be, nice to be together again. Or blind or something. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if you don't know who we are, we've got Jane Williams. And we have Michael Lloyd. Hello. And um, we are the original three team, who started, a team of three who started GodPods many, many years ago. And um, here we are for another discussion. So um, thank you again to everybody who has sent through their uh, questions. Um, it's always fascinating to read them. And thank you for those of you who um, don't send in questions, but send nice things that you want to say to us. And um, uh, it's always good to read those as well. Uh, yes, particularly cake. That would be good. We've just got a Kit Kat. Of course, you can buy other brands. Um, but they don't have to put up with that on on Test Match Special, do no, they? It's always they? homemade cakes. Yeah, we're not slightly, we lack, slightly lacking in cake at the moment. Yeah. But, yeah. I like the sort of biographical details that people give us around how the theological questions arose. Unlike Mike, I'm not so interested in the cake. I do, but I do. It's fascinating to hear the context. Uh, you need to get your priorities sorted out, Jane. <laughs> Although I might usually eat sort of berries and beans yes, and I, I do healthy usually. things like that. Rather I than usually cake. do. If there were That's cake, I would be eating <laughs> Anyway, we have uh, got a, a number of questions we're going to have a go at this time round for um, this God Pod. Uh, whether we'll make our... Um, we were set out with three questions. We never quite. Well, we sometimes we don't manage three because we get rather wrapped up in the first one or two. We become somewhat verbose, is I think the phrase you're looking for. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> But um, the first one we're going to have a look at is uh, one from uh, Tracy. So, um, Tracy, wherever you are, thank you for sending this in. And um, uh, Tracy uh, says this, I have a strong faith in God and consider myself a Christian, but for various reasons and relocations, I've not been a regular ch ch churchgoer since my late teens quite a long time ago. Um, none of my close family or friends are religious, and when I have gone to church on my own, haven't really been successful. I'm either pounced on and smothered by well-meaning parishioners or ministers, or else the congregation is so tightly knit I feel completely out of place. So I've taken to listening to sermons via download, reading my Bible on Kindle in places in uh, the countryside, but I wonder if I'm wrong not trying to find a real-life congregation. Time and work travel commitments contribute to my reluctance to try again, but the main fear is if I try in earnest, it would be a religious, religious equivalent of really bad speed dating. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess there are probably quite a lot of people out there who feel much the same. Today, it's a lot easier to, um, in some ways, get your sense of Christian connection through Twitter or through um, just listening to podcasts like this. Um, you don't actually have to kind of go to a physical location to hear a sermon or... 
um, to get some theological or spiritual input. So I guess the question is, um, can you be a Christian but not a churchgoer in the modern world? Is a virtual faith a valid choice? A really good question from Tracy. So um, anybody want to have a go at um, answering this one? I, well, shall I start? And then Mike can give you the right answer. Um, uh, <laughs> Usually the pattern, isn't it? It is. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. <laughs> Checks in the post, Graham, thank you. <laughs> um, I think part of our problem is that we now think of church as a building that you go to. Um, and if you look, for example, at the letter to the Ephesians, um, when the writer is talking about church... He's talking about the people who belong to Jesus Christ, um, who are drawn from all the different strata of society um, at the time uh, into this uh, supernatural community uh, who are held together by nothing except uh, their faith in in Jesus Christ. Um, And obviously they didn't have buildings in those days. So there was no question of going to church. It was a question about being church. Um, and I I found that um, an enormously helpful uh, way of approaching this question in that uh, we are called to be church, the people who belong to Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, it's hard to do that on your own. Distressingly, I wouldn't disagree with that. Yay! <laughs> A rare moment of agreement <laughs> on God However, <laughs> um, no, I think, I mean, clearly... The, the answer at one level to the question is, is yes, you can be, because it, it happens for a variety of reasons. Um, hermits, yeah. <laughs> people in solitary confinement in prison, um, but also more frequently people who have been so badly hurt by an experience of church that they find, they fear to try it again. And I kind of, get that in all sorts of ways i have a friend who was was victim of multiple abuse in in her childhood and finds so so often when she goes to church she's being enjoined to be reconciled to you know people um and finds that really difficult and i'm not surprised that she keeps away but there's something anomalous about that situation is very understandable. It does happen. Yes, you can be a Christian w- without it, but there's something that doesn't quite uh, fit with it, I think, in the sense that it, the cross is about breaking down the barriers between different kinds of people, different groups of people, uh, and, and, the, and is therefore a celebration of what the cross has done. Um, and, and I don't think you can do that in in a community of one uh, in the way that it was intended in the purposes of God. So I, I, I think, yes, it can be done, but there's something anomalous about that situation and, and very understandable and it may or may not be possible or right to put it right in any particular situation. But, but if it can be put right, it would be a huge uh, and, and wonderful thing, actually. That's right, and I suppose it, uh, it relates to this thing about what when we talk about becoming a Christian, what do we mean by that? Uh, is that something you, in a sense, do on your own in terms of your own individual relationship with God? In one sense, that's right, but um, there's another way of putting it that, that becoming a Christian is being is becoming part of the people who call themselves Christian. It's be- becoming a part of this 
this group, um, you know, the people that God has called out of the world for His His purposes. And I, I'm always struck by, and I think it's John Calvin talks about um, the church as our mother. And he picks up, and it's a theme that you find in patristic writings. People like Cyprian and others talk about the church as our mother. You know, our church gives us gives us birth, as it were. You know, so. But Calvin means it in a slightly different way from that. He means it that that if you're a you know little baby, uh, you desperately need your your mother because your mother is the is the source of food and the source of life. And and without your mother, you will shrivel and die, as it were. And and so. And the point he's making in, in that image of the church as our mother is that the, the, the church is the place where we go to find spiritual food. And he means by that both you know, the word, but also the sacrament, you know, because actually it's through um, that feeding that goes on within the life of the church through word, sacrament, fellowship, all the things that happen when you come together, that, that real feeding takes Place and now you can find forms of that, and of course, Calvin didn't know anything about podcasts and Godpod and everything else, and you know sermons that you can get online. Um, but it seems to be quite hard to get sacraments online. I know I've quite quite heard of a sort of virtual Holy Communion, um, but actually, you know, Holy home Co- delivery. That's like maybe that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it seems to be you know, the Holy Communion, or you know, whatever you call it, the Eucharist, the, the Lord's Supper, um, is one of those places where. However you understand it, we are being fed spiritually. Um, and therefore, to kind of cut yourself off from that is cutting yourself off from one of the main ways in which we are fed and nurtured and, and, and grow. So while I think Mike's right, there, are, there might be all kinds of reasons why particular individuals find it very difficult to go to church. And yes, there are circumstances where people have very mobile, very kind of you know peripatetic jobs. It becomes very hard to actually go to one particular community. But but that's that's an anomaly, not a no- normal yes, thing. Yes, yes. Um, so normally, one would say actually you kind of need the church as a place to to, to, to be nourished and fed, and the church needs you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because we are, it made, each of us made in the image of God, and therefore our own perspective on God is is quite a narrow one. Uh, we are like self-portraits of God from one particular angle, like having a model in the middle of the room and somebody drawing them. But you need, if you want to get a bigger picture of who God is, you need the other angles on him that other people represent. And therefore, the church is missing your particular reflection of who God is and his nature and his character and his... Um, and, personality. And I, was, I was very struck by the sort of speed dating idea, and it is um, I, I entirely see um, what what the questioner meant. You, you go in and you don't know if you're going to like this community or not. But again, that is part of the point, isn't it? That um, you are required to to um, love, even if you don't like the people that God has called together. There's a, um, a very good bit somewhere in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters about how it is one of the, the, the great temptations is to begin to despise the Christians around you and um, how you really have to watch out for that um, because it is a sign that actually you're beginning to think you're more like God than anybody else's and uh, and you begin to then to make God in your in your own image. Whereas, as Mike says, you, we, we need each other annoying as other people are. Um, uh, That's right. Yeah, and I've, I've been reading um, Soren Kierkegaard recently on on, on the love of the neighbour, and I, he argues that actually the love of the neighbour is the highest form of, of of love. It's actually higher than erotic love or friendship love, because you know love love for the beloved or for a friend is is partial. You know, you choose this particular person because you like them. 
Uh, whereas actually love for the neighbor is is impartial. It's, it's, it makes no distinctions whatsoever. And actually, if you love your friends or you love your beloved or you love your um, you know, people you like, that's fine. But it's that's not what God does. God loves everyone without partiality. So actually, only the love of the neighbor is like God's love. Doesn't it say that in the Sermon on the Mount somewhere? Exactly. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Probably where he got it from. So you still need to read Kierkegaard. Exposition of it. Yeah, but it strikes right. me that's something about church as well. I, and I would get so sometimes people come to, to me as a you know as a, in my role as a bishop and say, oh, I, I want to do church. I've got this group of friends, and we want to get together around a Christian table and do church together. And I'm always slightly suspicious of that. And I say, well, actually, church is not something you do with your friends. You don't choose your fellow Christians. Uh, you, you actually, you're called to love your fellow Christians, whatever they're like, whatever background, behavior, whether you like them or not, their kind of ethnicity, whatever it might, might, might be. And the place we start to learn to love our neighbors actually is in the church because the church is a place where we're brought together, uh, not because we like each other or because we share the same interests or because we share the same ethnicity or whatever but it genuinely is meant to be a community which is and I, I see this again and again in the churches I, I visit you know you've got the whole of a community present in that church it's the place where you start to learn to be a christian which is to learn to love god and your neighbor which is why it's called the family of god because you don't yeah. choose your family yes, either not the club and, and you may not be <laughs> yeah, like-minded right. you may not like each other particularly yeah. but you kind of have to yeah. get on with it yeah. and love each other because of your common parentage yeah. and I mean, it's the same our, the same in a sense for the church yeah. it is our common parentage yeah. that brings us together and then we just have to lump it and yeah. get on with it and it strikes me churches are very often in our society is one of the few places actually where people of different social backgrounds ethnicities do actually meet because very there aren't very many other places in our in our civic life where we do that anymore um you know, you tend to meet in a group which, you know, are bound together by a common interest or a common um, some, you know, something else. But it's, And therefore, church is a community where you start to learn to love someone who's unlike you. It's a crucial part of our growing as a Christian. And in the early church, one of the striking facts about it was the way in which it... Um, kind of was a ladder between the different social groupings. And so you had slaves and you had slaves becoming bishops uh, within this community. So it was, there was a real kind of breaking down of some of the barriers um, that were characterizing the, the surrounding society. Uh, that kind of must have been hard for people. I can't imagine that was a smooth, frictionless um, you can see it revolution. In 1 Corinthians 11, people trying to work out how they're going to eat together. Yes. Um, obviously having had very, very different cultural assumptions about how you do that. And some people desperate for food and some people um, providing the food. And you, you, you can actually see it in the New Testament, this community trying to work out how people from such different backgrounds become one family. Yes. So I guess what we're saying is that Godpod may be all very well, but it shouldn't replace church. It shouldn't become your church. Is that right? I fear that's probably right. I yes. we do have to agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So anyway, if you're listening to Godpod, great, fine, go on and listen to Godpod, but don't let it take the place of... And don't listen to it during the sermon in church. <laughs> <laughs> your vicar might not like it. You might not. Much, or your minister, whoever it is. Um Good. Okay. So thank you, Tracy, for that really good question. Um, we've got another one here from um, Tommaso, uh, or Tom, uh, from Reading. 
And he asks a whole series of questions, quite a lot of different questions. And uh, I thought I'd pick out one of them in particular, which is this one. Uh, Why is it necessary and right for waiting to occur in matters under God's control? And he says, I understand that to be made to wait reveals and encourages the quality of patience as opposed to impatience. But why and how does that make the waiting in question right? I mean this in terms of waiting for the resurrection of all things, among other examples on a smaller scale. So why do we have to wait for things? Why doesn't God just do it a bit more quickly, make things happen a bit more rapidly? Well, there's a number of. It's a really good question. So this time Mike's going to have different... a go at it, then Jane's going to give the right answer. Yeah. 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 Well <laughs> done, Graham. Right. Well saved there. <laughs> just rescued that one. Sorry. I noticed you never give the right answer. <laughs> no, no, I'm just the umpire. It's <laughs> um, a very rich question because there's a number of different levels there. I mean, in terms of the resurrection, the waiting for the resurrection, uh, I think there's a sense in which God is waiting for more people to be born, to come to know him, to be uh, belong to his kingdom, to begin to express the life of the kingdom in their own language and culture and art. Um, there's there's a, a wanting to have a countless multitude. Had the resurrection, the general resurrection come, you know, the Tuesday after Christ's resurrection, it would have been a very small company. So that that's part of what's going on is his wanting to share his life with uh, a countless multitude. And I suppose another aspect of it is that we don't see the whole thing, do we? We know what we're impatient for and what we'd like in our context. Um, but in the sort of complex interweaving um, set of relationships that is the world... Um, to, for for something to happen when I want it to happen, other people and other things have to line up, uh, and they may be at different stages of their 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 journey. I mean, so uh, again, the patience is partly um, learning God's patience to allow, as Mike says, as many people as possible to be to be part of that. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit in two Peter that talks about this, isn't it? You know. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day, which I think is your point, Jane, about you know time not being quite the way we think it is. But then he goes on, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, which is your point, Mike, about this multitude that he wishes to embrace and bring together. Um, and that takes time to, to build. I think that's right. And um, is also something about the kind of God we have. Uh, we, the question says, uh, these matters that are under God's control. Yeah, well, yes-ish, in the sense that God is not a controlling God. Uh, if he were, if he were just somebody who imposed his will on situations and contexts and people, regardless of... Uh, whether they wanted it, whether they cooperated with it, uh, or anything, then, then he, yes, he could snap his fingers and make everything perfect tomorrow. But, but he works around our responses. Um, he wait, waits for us to cooperate in all sorts of ways, uh, and that makes it a much messier process. But it's also one in which our decisions and our choices have real weight and value and importance and significance. That's kind of what makes us significant beings in all sorts of ways. 
And it, uh, and part of that is that the process is significant as well, not just the end. We're not just people made for one particular end. We're made for the the relationship, the growth, the formation that happens um, as we journey together with with God. So um, again, that sense of impatience for a particular end sort of undermines the Christian life that we're committed to living and it's kind of hard to imagine it any other way really because you think of you know our identities are sort of formed by the very things we've been through over our our lives you know you've been alive if you've been alive for a certain length of time you you are the person who has done all these things experienced all these things done these things things have these things have happened to you and that's who you are we are these sort of rich complex kind of ecosystems of being that we we are that um that actually when you take a you know you take a baby for example who has just been born into the world and has no history um it's a wonderful thing to look at a, at a baby um but it's not yet a complete human being and, and to, to become a complete human being needs take takes time for that thing to for that person to to develop often think of the the greek word teleos which is often um translated perfect you know be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect which is always quite a difficult thing to say you know how can i be perfect like god but as you can translate the word as mature so to be mature as your heavenly father is mature you know you think of, of god as someone who is completeness you know reached you know that there's no sort of lack of, of of maturity in him but that takes time for us to to grow into that and and therefore our identities are bound up with time in some way they're not they can't just be sort of snapped into into existence just like that. It's interesting that um, uh, even God incarnate takes time, mm. doesn't he? That yep. uh, that uh, the son takes time to grow uh, from childhood into adulthood. Mm. That mm. it isn't all achieved instantly. Yeah, um, and uh, even he is made perfect through yeah. suffering, as yeah. the as Book of Hebrews. And he grows in stature with in yeah. favour with God and with men. Yeah. And that, again, is an extraordinary little phrase in Luke, isn't it? The sense that uh, this maturing thing is not something to be uh, rejected or anxious about. It is part of what it is to grow up into into God. And actually, most worthwhile things take time. Yeah. If you want to learn to play an instrument well, it's going to take 10,000 hours or something. You know, the usual thing into doing anything well takes about 10,000 hours. Um so why would we expect shortcuts in the spiritual life? Which is not to say that our questioner shouldn't maintain that godly impatience. No. Um, so we don't we don't want to get to the point where we think, well, it doesn't really matter whether we ever achieve anything or not. Um, but uh, but with a willingness to assume that God knows what what God is doing. But <laughs> yeah, there's an interesting. Um, I guess there's a there's a quite a, a key. Um, well, the word is uh, a sort of tension between between waiting and. That kind of patience and impatience, yeah. waiting in one sense can be a slightly passive thing, where you're just sort of waiting for something to happen. Um, and there's an element of that. Sometimes in the New Testament, just waiting and enduring patiently is all, all you can do. In the book of Revelation, under the context of suffering and persecution, just endurance is enough. Um, but in other contexts, uh, it's not just a kind of waiting around, like in a waiting room, waiting for the dentist to kind of call you in. It's is that there is a kind of a, a godly impatience of wanting to to grow into maturity is an active thing and there's a different kind of waiting that's going on. So that polarity is quite important as well. It's not just a passive waiting, which is just hanging around until something happens. Mm -hmm. It's actually an active seeking 
for what God is looking to do and draw you into the future? A, a driving dissonance, a, a driving proper impatience that drives uh, godly action and campaigning for justice and, and everything else. I mean, the other the other side of things is um, because the will of God is opposed. Why do, why do things not happen instantly? Because the will of God is opposed. There's the extraordinary bit in, in Daniel 9 of Daniel praying um, and the archangel finally coming and saying, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm late. I got held up by the prince of Persia. <laughs> um, now, whatever's going on there, yeah. there's a sense of that, that there is opposition that we are usually unaware of. Well, even if we are part of it. Even if we're part of it. Yeah. Um, and and that it's not quite such a simple business as uh, as God just doing it. And actually, one knows that from... Um, I remember when I was first in, in the academic world, I kind of got impatient with the master of the college. Going, Why doesn't he just sort this out? You know, now I am head of a college. I suddenly realize it's a whole lot more complicated than that. It's not that yeah. easy, particularly if you're working around rather than bulldozing colleagues. Uh, with their sensitivities and and all the rest of it. Yes, even just sorting one person out is hard enough. But sorting out somebody in that interconnected web of relationships with oh. people who feel differently about things, want slightly different goals. Yes. Um, even in a, a college, you see how difficult that is. So if you're thinking about a universe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It, it's, it's not as, I suspect, as straightforward as as we assume that it is many, many times. Even for God. Even for God, that's not to take away from his omnipotence. It's to say that he's not a dictator. And that if what he wants is all human flourishing, how can you dictate that without the people being part of it? Yes. You will flourish. Yeah. <laughs> whether you want to or not. <laughs> I don't care if I have just reinterpreted the word. <laughs> It's a bit like um, a bit from the Big Bang Theory, isn't it? When Sheldon is complaining that he's been sent off on a holiday because and banned from the faculty because he hasn't had a holiday, and he's he said it's big, it's a dictatorship. He said, I, "You will take go uh, take a holiday. You will enjoy yourselves." <laughs> and Howard says, "I don't think you have a good handle on dictatorships." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's a good question. Um, thank you very much for that one, and. Um, uh, I hope that shed a little bit of light on that question of waiting and patience in the Christian life. Um, we should have said that we, we'll give the answer next time. Uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, so we've got one last one we'll do today, which is um, what about forgiveness? And the question is this, can there be forgiveness without a confession of sins? So if someone does not confess their sin, can you forgive them? Well, I think it's a very, very good question. And actually, the biblical material is quite complex on it, I think. Um, but I think we need to be to distinguish slightly between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is a means to reconciliation where there's been a rupture in a relationship. Um, but I think what the question is driving at is, is can you have reconciliation without confession? Probably not in serious cases anyway um because but there can be forgiveness in the sense that that that, that possible reconciliation is is offered 
that's in a sense what forgiveness is. It's the offering of that reconciliation despite what's happened. And is that what God then does for us in that um, God in Christ has forgiven all that we can ever possibly do? We never need to do anything more to achieve God's forgiveness. But that isn't going to make any difference to us as individuals unless we confess and accept and are reconciled and receive that forgiveness yeah Again, distressingly, yeah. I think I agree entirely with that. We mustn't make a habit of this. It's <laughs> a worrying trend on God's part. Yes. I think that's right, because I, I guess in, in, you think of a pastoral situation where a relationship is broken down, you know, and one person has offended the other and there's a need for forgiveness and um, and so on. I, I suppose you kind of need to forgive even whether the, whether the person has confessed or not. Because if you don't forgive, you are caught in that unforgiveness, which is a bad place to be. If you're in a relationship where you, you're unable to, to let go of a, of a slight or of an offense and you cling on to it and you, you hold it as a, as a grudge for a long period of time, that eats away at your soul. It's just not a good, good place to be. You have to be able to let go of it, forgive it. And I guess if, if you say, oh, well, I, I, I can't forgive because the other person hasn't confessed you're actually holding yourself in that unforgiveness in some ways you're still allowing the other person to to, to hold you in that place uh, and still to have their hold upon you and uh, that's why I think it's, it, it, it is kind of vital psychologically pastorally spiritually to be able to forgive whether or not the person has confessed the sin now as you say Mike you can forgive the sin if the person does not recognize that their faults or their sin or their 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 offense then reconciliation may not be possible and that person may not experience forgiveness so you can forgive but that person may not experience forgiveness and i guess that's the distinction so when that happens i think when a person forgives but the other person says well i didn't do anything wrong you know then somebody that the person who's been offended has now been freed you've been freed of unforgiveness um, but the other person still remains in, in bondage to, to, the, to, to the kind of deceit of not of a lack of confession. Whereas I, I tend to feel that you know if you if you if you have to withhold forgiveness until the other person confesses, then where can you go with that? It's it's really not not a good place to be. And there are situations where it would be wrong, not not perhaps safe to be reconciled unless there has yeah. been an acknowledgement right. yeah. of or, and a, and a change. Mm. Uh, in, in the person and I think it's, it's actually quite pastorally mm. dangerous to confuse forgiveness and reconciliation that's right because like if you force a reconciliation in some cases that can be quite dangerous if, yes. if patterns of behavior are still in still in place where actually to kind of pretend a reconciliation which may not be maybe it may be a dangerous thing it can be one putting one, somebody back into a, a, exactly, a place yeah. of threat so and, forgive. and damage um, but forgiveness does not necessarily mean you have to go back to exactly as it as it was because there's always that you know if that pattern of behavior continues in in, in future that may not be a safe place to be and and the, i think the phrase forgive and forget is a very unhelpful one yeah, yeah. because um one cannot a and b possibly shouldn't um forget what's happened you know that's right it seems to me that I'm, I'm not sure that god forgets our sin when he forgives it it's not as he pretends we haven't done it. It's not like he sort of um, 
has to blank out that bit of his his memory, he chooses not to hold it against us. Yeah. That's the distinction, I think. Do- doesn't it weigh yeah. in and, the relationship? And then presumably as we confess our own sins, what happens is that we also grow in freedom. We learn from what has been holding us back and warping us and making us behave in ways that we're ashamed of. And mm. so so confession for the person making the confession is also an important part mm. of of being free and forgiven. Yes. So actually both forgiveness and confession bring freedom, freedom. Yeah. on both sides when an offence has happened. Yes. Because actually to forgive frees you from holding on to this grudge forevermore and it releases you from that. Confession frees you from from either the deception that you've not done anything wrong or the, the guilt that stays with you over time. And it's when confession meets forgiveness that mm. you get complete freedom on both sides. And reconciliation, the, the, the restoration of the of relationship. possible, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think I think our answer is um, there can be forgiveness without a confession of sins, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean reconcili- reconciliation, or it doesn't necessarily mean that the the person who has been forgiven experiences forgiveness. Because I guess it's true, isn't it? Is, is, is it right to say that that God forgives the sins of the world, but unless we take that to ourselves and um, Unless we confess our sins, we we in a sense remain in our in our unforgivenness. It's not that God doesn't forgive us, but we have not received that forgiveness. Because otherwise, forgiveness becomes something a bit automatic, doesn't it? It becomes like a stamp in a in a book, rather yeah. than a restoration of relationship. How yeah. can God mm. uh, restore relationship with us if we are refusing that relationship? Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Again, that's something that cannot be done unilaterally. No, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So there's a bit of a theme emerging out of our yeah. God pod today, isn't there? Yes, that's true. Exactly. Yeah, God not forcing himself upon us. And the kind of delicate interaction between divine action and human agency and what we do in response to God's approach to us. Because what God does is always personal and relational. Because God is personal and relational. Hmm. And on that note <laughs> of wisdom from Jane. <laughs> One of many pearls that have dropped from the lips of Jane and Mike. Which we're casting years. before you, dear readers, the swine. <laughs> Come on, Mike. This is a rather rude way to talk to our listeners. Don't be offended by that, please. In which case, we ask you know for your Mike forgiveness. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Mike will confess next time. Yes, I, I, I shall. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you for listening to this Godpod, and um, so goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. goodbye. And uh, hopefully, we'll um, have you with us next time. Goodbye. Godpod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.